This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we are interviewing Aaron Gless, the Executive Director of the Pacific Whale Watch Association, headquartered in Anacortes, Washington. PWWA is a community of ecotourism professionals with a shared commitment to education, conservation, and responsible wildlife viewing throughout, throughout Washington State and British Columbia. Aaron holds a BS in biology with marine emphasis from Western Washington University, as well as other degrees in public relations and Spanish. She's been a passionate member of the whale-watching community since 2008, working as a whale-watching naturalist in both Southern California and in the, the Salish City here in Washington. Erin is particularly interested in the region's baleen whale species, mink whales, gray whales, and humpbacks. In her spare time, Erin also volunteers for Cascadia Research Collective, cataloging Hawaiian pan-tropical spotted dolphins and for the free whale identification platform, happywhale.com. So welcome, Erin. It's good to be talking with you up there in cold Anacortes. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for having me today. So uh, who are the members of the PWWA? Yeah, so you did a great job kind of uh, describing our organization in your introduction. We're a group of ecotourism professionals throughout British Columbia and Washington State who have a shared commitment to education, conservation, and responsible wildlife viewing. And are they individual members or are they company members or how does that work? Yeah, so we have 30 member companies oh, wow. right now. Uh -huh. um, and then, so technically the companies are the members and then we have uh, hundreds of captains, naturalists, deckhands, office staff who are all under mm. that PWWA umbrella. I see. Do they all pay, pay dues to belong or just the companies pay? Uh, the company. So, yeah, if yeah. you work for okay. a PWWA member company, then you get those privileges. So I couldn't join as an individual, right? Unless you wanted to start up a whale watch company. Then <laughs> because, yeah. Well, I think that's beyond me. Anyway, uh, what do they do? What's, uh, what's the wildlife patrons can expect to see when they're out there on the water? Yeah, so obviously, first and foremost, we offer whale watch tours. So that's the big draw to this area. Uh -huh. We get lots of visitors from within Washington State and British Columbia, lots of folks from within the rest of Canada and the rest of U.S., and lots of international guests, too. So we are really a destination for whale watching. And so our operators take guests out on guided whale and wildlife tours throughout the Salish Sea. The great thing is every day is a little bit different, so we don't have, you know, set routes that we follow. Nobody knows where the whales are going to be on any particular day. So even if you come out, you know, seven days in a row, every trip will be absolutely different. Yeah. Are there differences among the whale watchers, and do they operate out of different ports? Yes. Yeah, so we are currently, I mentioned, 30 member companies departing from 24 different ports in Washington State and British Columbia. Uh, our farthest south member company right now departs from Seattle, Washington. 
uh, down in Puget Sound. And right now our farthest north departs from Telegraph Cove, BC, which is up on the north end of Vancouver Island. So uh, several hundred miles in between those locations. So we've got really great coverage of this area. And uh, so what kind of wildlife can patrons expect to see? I assume whales. What else? Yes. So the whales, of course, are the big draw. And uh-huh. we have really four main species of whales that I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail later uh-huh. today. But right. we are known for killer whales, sometimes known as orcas. Uh, we're known for humpback whales, minke whales, and gray whales are the four uh, whale species. But we like to always brag that we're not just in it for the whales. We really want to emphasize all of the region's wildlife. And so while we're out there, we're also looking for seals, sea lions, porpoises, all kinds of bird activity. Um, so it's really kind of a, an all-encompassing tour. So it's a whale watch tour, of course, but we don't discriminate. We like to see all wildlife. So people take their chances of what they will see when they're out there on the uh, Salish Sea, right? They, uh, they're not assured of seeing anything at all, but hopefully they'll get to see a lot of birds and pinnipeds and whales and so on. Yes, of course, with nature, nothing is guaranteed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say that the chances of seeing whales on a Pacific Whale Watch Association trip are better than 90%. And depending on what time of year you come, it's actually even higher than that. Uh, And one of the reasons that we're able to guarantee such a high success rate uh, is well, I guess two reasons. One is that we just have a lot of whales here. I mentioned that the Salish Sea is known as a whale-watching destination, and that's not by accident. We have lots of whales that are here year-round. Uh, but the other reason our success rate is so high that really sets us apart from other geographic locations is the fact that we do all work together as an association. So uh, you mentioned in the intro that I used to work down in California. Not quite as collaborative a spirit down there in California, I'll tell you from experience. But up here, if one boat sees whales, we'll call the other boats on the radio and share that information. Uh, Within the Pacific Whale Watch Association, we have a private app where we share whale sightings. And so if one boat finds whales all the other boats will know about it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the whales will be within reach of that boat, but at least we know what's out there. And uh, that, again, really just puts us up at better than a 90% success rate. So, yeah, the chances of seeing whales are are more than just good. They're really quite excellent. Is there a difference in the format of of the tour, the various tours? Uh, There are some shorter than others, or some even overnight, or what kind of arrangements are available? Yeah, so most of our trips are going to be kind of what we call a half-day tour. So depending on the type of vessel and where you're departing from, it might be, say, a three- to five-hour trip. But we also have operators who offer extended tours. Some will offer eight, even 12-hour trips, which I know sounds like a long time on the water, but believe it or not, those trips usually sell out on the first day that bookings are available. And then some operators even actually do uh, offer multi-day tours. So you'll go out on the boat all day, you'll maybe stop and spend the night on an island, and then go out whale watching again the next day. So most of our companies are known for their traditional, again, three to five hours in length trips, but uh, there's definitely folks out there who demand more time on the water. And so some of our folks do offer extended trips. But the boats are all quite different. There's something for everyone. We have uh, sailboats within our fleet. We have inflatable Zodiacs. We've got 
catamarans. It's really up to you as a passenger what type of experience you're looking for, but between all of our different member companies, we've got everybody covered. Who are the crew that are on a typical tour? So it really will depend on the type of vessel that you choose. So I mentioned that some of our boats are, you know, small Zodiacs or six packs, we call them six passenger vessels that might only have a captain and that captain's going to serve as your captain as well as your guide. Some of the larger vessels have the luxury of having more crew on board. So you'll have captains, a separate naturalist or even multiple naturalists that'll be explaining what kind of wildlife you're seeing and taking pictures. We've got deckhands who are helping out uh, on board. Some of our boats, the larger ones actually even have restaurants on board, if you can believe it. So they might be, you know, serving up a cup of clam chowder while you're watching whales. So again, it really just depends on the company and the vessel that you choose, but uh, there's lots of different types of crew members within the PWWA. And what's the range of cost for a whale watching tour? So a really good question as well. It really, again, depends on the length of tour, the type of vessel you're going on. You can expect that a larger vessel, the price will be uh, a little bit less than if you're looking for a more exclusive, you know, six-passenger experience on a small boat. But I'd say the typical price is going to be anywhere from about $90 up to about $150. Are there any rules in regard to the patrons? <laughs> no rules, uh, but we certainly do encourage guests to have positive attitudes. As I mentioned, you know, nature is uh, not predictable. Every tour is different. One of the things about Washington specifically is that we might find lots and lots of whales, but it could potentially be, you know, 40 degrees and raining while you're watching those whales. So you really have to be prepared for everything, but no rules. And as far as ages, uh, you know, we can have newborn infants on board. Some of our larger vessels, that's not a problem at all. We've had guests that are uh, at least 100 years old come out to tick something off their bucket list. So there's really not many restrictions. Oh, I meant to ask, uh, if you're on an overnight tour and you mentioned you would stay on an island, do you need your own sleeping bag or are there nicer accommodations? Yeah, so a lot of them uh, that I'm thinking of that do kind of those overnight experiences happen in the San Juan Islands uh -huh. or uh, within Puget Sound. So places like Whidbey Island, for example, and they'll actually just stay at local lodging. So, you know, local inns or hotels. Uh-huh, I see. And you have to pre-reservation those situations? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like I said, those are usually limited offerings. So they, oh. a company might only offer that maybe once a year, yeah. and they usually sell out pretty quickly. So uh -huh. if you have your heart set on one of those types of experiences, we usually recommend that you follow those companies specifically on social media so that when they announce it, you can book those trips right away. So uh, is the whale watching season year-round, or are there high seasons and low seasons? So one of the things that makes the Salish Sea so unique, and again, when we talk about the Salish Sea, we're talking about the inland waters of Washington and British Columbia. Uh, unlike a lot of whale watching destinations, we do have whales year round. Uh, I mentioned that we have at least four different types of whales that we see regularly. Uh, the great thing about killer whales or orcas is that they don't migrate. So they can be seen at any time of year. Uh, we have humpback whales, which can be here year round, but they're usually here, I would say, April through November. Uh, gray whales are usually here in the winter and springtime. Minkies are here in the summer and fall. So when you add it all up, there's always some type of whale to see. 
Now, you mentioned, is there a peak season? There certainly is, but it is weather dependent as opposed to whale dependent. So we typically say that peak season is going to be April through October, just because that's when we have the best weather conditions. So I assume that guides have developed a great deal of expertise about life in and above the water. How do they get prepared to be a guide? So I would say that more than half of our guides have degrees specifically in marine biology or another environmental science field, uh, such as myself. You mentioned that my background is in marine biology specifically. This is a dream job for many. And so a lot of our folks have a lot of experience and they learn a lot just by being on the water. Uh, I would say the majority of our guides have been doing this for at least a decade. Some of them have been doing this for three or four decades, if you can believe that. So uh, it's kind of a mixture of formal education combined with lots and lots of years of experience on the water. Okay, uh, but there are no official, no criteria that are absolute that one has to meet in order to become a guide. Uh, not, a, not a naturalist, so the naturalist, again, is going to be your wildlife guide. Okay. Obviously, to be a captain, yes, you have to have uh, your captain qualifications, your captain's license, lots of time at sea, uh, all of your safety measures. But to be a guide or to be another crew member aboard, a PWA vessel, you're correct. There's not one universal standard. Mm. And I actually kind of like it that way. You know, I mentioned that I've worked in other parts of the world where uh, everyone kind of has to go to the same, uh, you know, training seminars. They actually read off of a script. So regardless of what you're seeing with your eyes, you're hearing, you know, a scripted uh, spiel over the microphone. And, you know, that's really impersonal. I like having all these different unique backgrounds and personalities coming together. I think that that really makes for a more enhanced experience. So the website uh, of the PWWA uh, indicates that members are strongly committed to conservation of the marine life. Uh, uh, tell me, tell me about that, uh, and what are the regulations that are involved? Uh, do the operators regulate themselves, or do they have to meet some kind of a state or uh, other standard? Yeah, so there's actually quite a lot of standards, um, both formal and informal. Uh, so Washington, as well as British Columbia, where we also operate, have some of the strictest whale watching regulations in the world. I'm not sure if many people realize that. So uh, even compared to neighboring states, uh, Washington, for example, has stricter whale watching regulations than Oregon or California or Alaska. And so I always encourage people that really want to make sure they're going whale watching in a place that does it sustainably, that's what makes Washington so special, is that we do have really strict rules in place. Uh, also here in Washington State specifically, we are the only state that has a designated whale watch license. And so that's done through Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Every year we have to apply for these licenses and we receive training through the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, and um, that is just another kind of level to that regulation that we have here in Washington that neighboring states don't have. So that's kind of all the formal regulation. And then internally, Pacific Whale Watch Association does our own annual training of all of our captains and naturalists to just kind of make sure that everybody's, you know, up to date on the latest regulations. Um, in addition to the formal regulations, we do also have informal guidelines such as, you know, speed regulations and etiquette <laughs> when we're on scene, things like that, that we go into detail. So we've got lots of formal rules. And then we also spend a lot of time educating our operators um, kind of on those voluntary guidelines as well. Mm -hmm. 
so uh, let's move on and talk about orcas. Uh, okay. Do you, do you prefer the name orca or killer whale, or don't you care? If, yeah, so they are absolutely interchangeable. Uh, I will tell you that here in the Pacific Northwest, I have found that uh, this is a very heated debate, <laughs> and I've been on the receiving end of a lot of ire when I do refer to them as killer whales. I think a lot of folks up here like the term orca. They feel like killer whale is, you know, a little bit harsh, <laughs> um, and it paints the depiction of these animals as being, you know, violent killers. But the truth is they are, and most of the members of the scientific community uh, actually do utilize killer whale more so than orca. Uh, one little tidbit your listeners may be interested in is that uh, killer whales is kind of the term that came first because they are, of course, apex killers. They're at the top of the food chain. Their scientific name is Orsinus orca. And so that's where calling them orcas originated. But what many folks who are proponents of using orca instead of killer whale because of the undertones don't realize is that Orsinus orca in Latin basically translates to demons from hell. <laughs> so if you're pushing for the term orca because you think that's a warm and fuzzy uh, moniker over killer whale, the origin's actually a bit darker. So one of those orca pods are known as the southern resident killer whales. I've wondered why is that designation southern when actually they're up in the north part of the, the Puget Sound Salish Sea area? Yeah, so, and again, I'm sure we'll have more time to talk about this, but we have basically two types of orcas that we see here in the Salish Sea. Uh, we have the bigs, or the mammal-eating killer whales, and then we have the southern resident, or the fish-eating killer whales. Oh. And southern resident, as you mentioned, is, is a little bit misleading because, uh, yeah, we're in the Pacific Northwest, so where did southern come from? But there are actually populations of fish-eating killer whales in the kind of North British Columbia area, and those are known as the northern residents compared to the southern residents, which we have uh, in the Salish Sea and actually go all the way down into California. And then there are even Alaskan resident killer whales that live up in Alaska. So out of those three fish-eating populations, the ones that we see in the Salish Sea are the southernmost of those three, and that's where southern comes from. Do those southern killer whales uh, migrate out into the ocean, or do they stay within the Sailor Sea? Yeah, so that's the other misleading part of their name, is residence certainly implies that they stay in one place, but they are resident to the waters between southeast Alaska and central California. So they actually go all the way down to Monterey Bay in California. They've been recorded as far north as southeast Alaska, um, so they certainly do not stay here in Washington. They are constantly on the move out in the outer coast as well. What I've just recently heard about are the big orcas. Uh, yeah. So, uh, how are they different from the southern residents? And are they new within the Salish Sea, or uh, what's that situation about? Yeah, so the bigs killer whales, and that's Biggs with two G's, D-I-G-G apostrophe S, after Dr. Michael Biggs, who is a killer whale researcher. Um, they are not new to this area, but they have been rebranded. <laughs> so back in the 70s, uh, they noticed that there were, in fact, these two different types of killer whales. Some would eat seals, and some were eating salmon. And so they named the southern residents at the time the salmon eaters, 
the residents because they were seen here more often. Back in the 70s, we had more salmon, and so the, quote, residents were staying here quite a while. The bigs used to be known as transients, and perhaps you and your listeners have heard of them referred to as transients before. They were called transients because back up until 1960, Washington, as well as Oregon and Alaska, actually had a government-sponsored bounty program on the food of choice of big killer whales, which are seals and sea lions. And so we didn't have a lot of seals and sea lions, so the, quote, transients were seen very rarely. That's how they got their name. Well, over the last 50 years, things have totally changed. We don't have as much salmon, but we have recovered our seal and seal populations now that those bounty programs stopped. And so the, quote, transients were spending so much time here. In fact, they've been seen every single day since March 12th so far this year. So that term transient just really didn't give an accurate depiction of their behavior. And so a few years ago, the scientific community and the whale watching community started using that other designation a bit more, the big killer whales, uh, just because transient was a bit misleading. So are there are the habitats of these different pods of whales, are they different uh, in the Sailor Sea? They occupy different parts of the sea? And are, they, are those areas, those habitats separated from each other? Yeah, so the really fascinating thing about these two populations is that uh, they are not separated. They inhabit the exact same range. So just mm. like the southern residents, the fish eaters, mm. go from Alaska down to California, so do the big killer whales. They also uh, go from Alaska down to California. They're just constantly on the move. If you're familiar with, you know, wolf behavior, same idea. They kind of have this big territory, and they're constantly patrolling, looking for food. So these are just big wolves of the sea, if you will. Uh, but the really fascinating thing is that they do inhabit that same exact habitat. So they're exposed to the same environmental factors, the same pollution, the same vessel traffic. All those things are the same. But big killer whales right now are thriving. They're having babies just left and right, whereas the southern resident killer whales are faltering and actually their population is in decline. And the only difference between the two is their food source. Uh, well, are the, are the pods, uh, do they show aggressive behavior against each other? Yeah, they don't show aggressive behavior necessarily, uh, but there have been, I'd say, a handful of times over the last several years where they've crossed paths, and what transpires is not exactly what you would expect. Uh, the fish-eating, smaller uh, fish-eating orcas, the southern residents, actually chase away the larger mammal-eating big killer whales, which is, again, probably counterintuitive, but uh, that's what we've observed. That the few times that they have been in close proximity to each other, it's actually the fish eaters that scare away the mammal eaters. So there are some differences in diet between the different kinds of whales. You've touched on that. Just clarify that. Differences as far as their population status? The different kinds of food that they consume. So the big killer whales eat marine mammals, and so that includes seals, sea lions, porpoises, and even other types of whales, such as mm. minke whales, for example. Mm. And then the southern residents eat fish, exclusively fish. Uh, they prefer salmon, especially Chinook salmon, because that is the largest and fattiest of the salmon species. They also will eat coho. They'll eat chum. They don't seem to eat pink salmon, 
or sockeye salmon, which is unfortunate because pink salmon seem to be doing quite well right now. Um, and they'll also on occasion eat other types of fish such as lingcod. Um, but salmon is really what they evolved to specialize in. Are tour operators required to uh, file their sightings and make reports? So one thing that I think many people don't realize is that endangered southern resident killer whales, we actually do not watch anymore as professional whale watchers. So our tours focus solely on those big killer whales, humpback whales, minkies, and greys. Here in Washington State, we're actually not allowed to get any closer than half a nautical mile of southern resident killer whales if they're in the area. Uh, If we do come across them, we are required to report them to Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, but then we just move on on our way. So we are no longer watching endangered southern resident killer whales. Are those southern residents, uh, are they faltering, as you put it, uh, because of uh, food supply, the lack of uh, the kind of salmon that they eat? Yes, so that is the number one reason that their population is not thriving is because they don't have enough year-round salmon. Uh, It's not just the quantity, but also the quality. So over time, there are not only fewer salmon, but the average size of the salmon is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so whereas, again, 50 years ago, they might be eating, hmm, let's say, you know, 10, 30 or 40 or 50 pound fish a day, now, in order to get 300 pounds of salmon, they might have to eat, you know, 40 or 50 salmon that are smaller to get that same amount of calories, which means they're actually burning more calories than they're consuming trying to catch all those fish. So it's a unfortunate situation, but food shortage is definitely the number one reason that they're not thriving. There are complications. Pollution is very detrimental to southern resident killer whales as is disturbance, um, underwater sound disturbance can impact the way that they hunt as well. But those things are only problems because there's not enough salmon. So if there were plenty of salmon for them, they'd still be able to find those salmon if there were lots of vessels in the area. Or the chemical pollution is not as important because those chemicals are fat-soluble. They only get digested if the animal is dipping into their fat stores. So if you're nice and fat and happy, like our big killer whales who are eating plenty of seals every day, Mm -hmm. your body's not breaking down those chemicals. But for the southern residents, because they're hungry, they're always metabolizing those chemicals, Uh, and that's led to quite a lot of problems. So the website has a section on public outreach. Talk about that. Yeah, so we kind of like to emphasize that whale watching doesn't only have to occur on a whale watch boat. Uh, We... For those who maybe can't get out on the water or maybe the weather prohibits it, we also do public outreach events. So we'll go to school classrooms and talk a little bit about whales. And sometimes we'll do those ideally in conjunction with a field trip later on. Maybe you go to their class, teach them about whales, and then they'll get to come out on a trip later in the year. But it doesn't have to be just children. We'll go to public events. We go to workshops, symposiums. We'll go speak. Uh, I've done several talks at local, you know, yacht clubs and boating groups, kayak groups, things like that. Anybody that's interested in learning more about local wildlife, we'll go and, you know, give them a talk on whatever they'd like to learn about. And uh, it also talks about Sailor Sea Sentinels. What are those? 
Yes, uh, those are us, the whale watchers. So Mm -hmm. the Sentinel Action Program is something that we started keeping track of several years ago. We refer to these protective actions that we perform during our tours as sentinel actions. And so when we're out on a boat watching whales, if we see a boater speeding towards the whales, we might, you know, wave our arms or a flag to get them to slow down. If we know that whales are up ahead of the ferry, we'll call a ferry on the radio and give them a heads up so that they can alter their course. If we see a balloon, you know, drifting in the water, we'll stop and pick it up. All of those little things that we're doing throughout the course of our tours to help wildlife, we've called those sentinel actions. And so we've been doing them for years and years and years, but we just finally started keeping track of that back in 2020. And so far for 2023, we've logged more than 1,300 sentinel actions. So uh, it's something that's really important to us not just to go out and see the whales, but we really need to make sure that when we're out there, we're also helping the whales. Well, Erin, you won't believe it, but a half hour has gone by since we started talking, and I really appreciate it. But I've got more questions, so maybe next week we can do another interview. Oh, wow, yeah, time flies when you're having fun. Yes, hopefully we'll get to talk more. Our guest today has been Erin Glass, Executive Director of the Pacific Whale Watch Association, headquartered in Anacortes, Washington. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to jswilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.